Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Man, I miss saying that. And yes, it has been a very, very long time. And if you're listening to this episode in the future and you just went from 56 to 57 and don't know what I'm talking about, well, it's been a four-month hiatus. So I wanted to give a quick update on me, what I've been doing, but also for the show in general. Since my last episode, a lot has changed. Yeah, a previous thing in my personal life had me a bit down, as you all know, but since the last episode, I have gotten a new job, quit the old job, packed up all my things, drove across the entire country with those things, went apartment hunting, unpacked all my things, organized, got settled into the new place, again, all while starting a new job. I am... Finally, all settled into the new role and the new digs, but this was not exactly a period of time that allowed me to have the necessary time to write a proper script. Oh, and my mic was in a box, so alas. I'm officially all moved in and settled in Austin, Texas. Thus, we have now knocked Joe Rogan off his pedestal of best podcast in Texas. But all jokes aside, what I really wanted to discuss right now quickly was where the show goes from here. This is episode 57, it will come out. Then soon after, 58, 59, etc., as we finally march along back on a normal pace. But after much thought and realizing the simple reality of my current schedule, I was faced with one of three options. One, keep going indefinitely at this pace. This would see a continual, albeit sporadic, release of episodes at this pace, i.e. in the chronological pace, till the end of my days. I did the math. I probably might not live to see the end of this podcast at this rate. And I sadly cannot do that, as again, my current life predicaments see this as untenable. Option two, though, was and is no longer an option, but really it is to pause the show indefinitely until I'm able to post and write regularly. That is also silly, and I'm back, so I won't be doing that necessarily. But option three is sort of a hybrid, which, as you can guess, is probably what's going to happen. Again, probably. Who knows? And that is keep going at a solid pace, but towards a known end point. I made this show to juxtapose Rome. That was the whole point. As I was gauged at Western listeners initially, though we are actually charting heavily in China itself, so that sort of point to the podcast has changed, but the fact is, I like other history too. And going on indefinitely all but scratches out my ability to talk about and work with other stuff forever, which is not ideal. With my job, I cannot do weekly episodes as easily as I could in college. So, with the purpose of this show being to juxtapose Rome and to shed a light on a woefully underappreciated civilization, my current schedule, and my yearning for other projects more akin to a Dan Carlin length and release schedule, the show will go in the following direction, I think. We will wrap up the Han Dynasty in time, which ends in 220 AD, after trouble really starts in 189 which, as you know, is really close to where we are now. I will then start the Three Kingdoms period, and we will make our way to about 476, 
And that date might not mean anything to China, in fact it doesn't, but it marks the fall of Rome. And I know, don't email me, I know that that's an oversimplistic date, but it's the date some people hang their hats on, so that's the one we're going to hang our hat on. Now from there, this pacing and the way the show is will, I believe, change. I will go on a much more macro and much quicker route through Chinese history, and then soon I'll reach the end, and the show will be over, forever and for good. Look, I'm obviously open to doing more episodes and projects on Chinese history, but I need time to figure out other subjects to do, figure out my own life, it seems, and so much more. Every good thing comes to an end eventually. Well, I mean, every bad thing, too. Everything comes to an end. But I don't want this show to ever become a chore for me. And I don't want to ghost anyone and just stop posting randomly one day or have there be any surprises of the like. So with that, let's get back into this. To catch us back up, yeah, maybe you should listen to the last episode if you waited a couple months, but Prince Bao was pushed away by Empress Yan, as he presented a threat to her own power and the power of her brothers. She got his wet nurse killed, she got him demoted and pushed out of the succession line, and when Emperor An died out of nowhere in 125, Empress Yan installed an infant as the new emperor. So her brothers and herself thus essentially ruled the land with full control over this infant king. And the plan was working great. And Crown Prince Bao, who, mind you, was the only actual son of the now late Emperor An, was so well excluded from the palace by them that he wasn't even able to be around for the official palace mourning for the death of Emperor An. Dang! And the only thing that would ruin the Yan's plan is if the child emperor got very sick right away. The child emperor got very sick right away. And that gets us all set and ready. Let's get back into it. Oh, I miss saying this, but without further ado... The History of China, Episode 57. The End is Nigh. With the infant puppet emperor, we'll call him that, sick, eunuchs loyal to Prince Bao saw their time to seize back the initiative from Empress Yan and her brothers. The eunuch Xuan Chong got together with other eunuchs loyal to Prince Bao and other officials, including his head of household, 18 of them in total, by the way, and they hatched a plan. Call it a conspiracy, depending on which side of this you're on. And all they had to do, in the meantime, was wait for the young, sick, infant emperor to, well, die. And then the plan would be a go. And they did not have to wait very long, as within a month or even a few weeks, if not days after the news first leaked that the infant emperor was sick, the infant emperor dies. And just like that, it's game time. Seizing the initiative, Sun Cheng and his conspirators stormed the palace, killed one of Empress Yan's advisors, and flipped another to their side. Okay, well, flipped to their side is a generous way to say it. 
let's just say they gave him a deal he couldn't refuse. Yeah, join or die. They then proclaimed Prince Bao as emperor. Look, possession is nine-tenths of the law, and all they had to do now was hold the palace and keep the crown prince alive. In a truly wild scene, something straight out of Game of Thrones it feels like, the eunuchs from both sides of this battled in the palace for the next few days. Officials and eunuchs were fighting in the palace, but after a bunch of fighting, the Empress Dowager and her brothers were defeated. Prince Bao was now emperor, and no one could challenge it anymore. And sticking to the trends of the day, the first order of business was to obviously eliminate the entire Yan clan. I mean, that's what we do these days. A couple bad apples, yeah, you're all dead. And eliminated they were. Empress Yan herself was put into solitary confinement in her own palace and died the next year in 126. But so look, in 125, and I know, that was quick. This happened within a year. It was a bang-bang play, as they say. But in 125, we see Prince Bao become Emperor Shen of Han. The histories are often written with a plug-and-play model of, like, four possible ways that a reign starts. And Emperor Shen's early history is recounted no differently. People were initially hopeful, and this happens all the time, but people were initially hopeful that the young teenage emperor would be a breath of fresh air and that he would be a much-needed change from the corrupted and self-indulgent yawns that just came and just went. The key words there were initially hopeful, because very quickly it became apparent that Emperor Shen was not and would never be anything special. He wasn't evil or vindictive, per se. He was no Prince Joffrey or Commodus. But he wasn't too bright or cunning, either. Maybe he was a nice guy, sure. But it was quickly obvious that he maybe wasn't born to be a leader. He had some good, solid, and honest officials that he kept around in his company. But just the same, he kept corrupt ones, too. He was an indecisive and malleable teenager, and these more corrupt officials were able to, at times, work the young emperor. And what do I mean by indecisive or wasn't that great? Well, it didn't take long. In 126, Xuan Cheng, the eunuch who had essentially put the metaphorical crown on Emperor Xuan's head, wanted the emperor to push through a wide range of probably much-needed reforms and reforms that the dynasty probably needed. Poor Sun Chung wanted these reforms to pass. Heck, they probably needed to be passed. And backing Emperor Shen was his best shot of getting them through. I mean, he wasn't going to get them through Empress Yan and her corrupt, power-hungry brothers. Because, look, the Eastern Han was not falling quite yet. But the foundation was crumbling. And many saw the need to rectify these now potentially terminal issues. But in a strange and rare move of assertiveness, Emperor Xuan removed Xuan Cheng from the capital for his audacity to be so pushy on these reforms. Sigh. 
meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But Roger Daltrey isn't here to say that now, and Emperor Shen wasn't that assertive, though, as Sun Chung, the eunuch, was recalled to the capital just two years later in 128. Though Sun Chung might have played kingmaker and he was back in the capital, for the rest of his time, he continued to have deficient influence and failed to push through any real reforms. And here is what I've been building up to over the last few episodes, is that these things, these issues, while maybe small on the onset, continue to fester. Things don't collapse in a day. One cut doesn't automatically just immediately turn gangrenous and kill you. So much has to happen to compound problems to where they do become fatal. And this is where it just continues to slowly pile up and the Gordian knot just gets ever so tighter on the Eastern Han Dynasty. Now, what do I mean? Well, one region we have mentioned that has been a source of both pride and despair as of late for Eastern Han emperors were the Shiyu kingdoms. We've gone over this area time and time again, and once more in this story, like the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, we're going to repeat ourselves once more. I won't dive too deep into the inner workings of what happened in the Shiyu kingdoms, but at a 30,000-foot cruising altitude look at things, Ban Chao's son, remember Ban Chao? He was the brother of the great historian Ban Gu. Well, his son went into the Shiyu area as a military commander and reasserted control over the region. Sort of. Because in 127, a corrupt and jealous, I'll call him a co-worker or official, there was another guy in the army, well, he got some fake accusations drummed up of Ban Chao's son being late to service. Got those leveled, and now Ban Chao's son gets booted from his post the guy who actually asserted control, and the Shiyu region goes right back into chaos. Small things, slowly, but very surely, getting worse. It's just that, though. Small things. It's not all calamity. The Eastern Han meanders along, and while Emperor Shen oversees no tyrannical mania and induced bad decisions... He also oversees no corrections for these systemic corruption issues. He's not out there doing evil, but he's also not out there doing the good that needs to be done. Decisions really just weren't for him. And with that, the Eastern Han just slowly, ever so slowly, got weaker and weaker. And look, his lack of assertive decision-making, for better or for worse becomes a personal issue in 131. What do I mean? Well, this is a great story. So Emperor Shen allegedly wanted an empress. I mean, who doesn't? But he didn't want to play a ranking game or to pick favorites amongst his concubines or his harem. So with that, it is alleged that Emperor Shen's solution for this, for how to pick his empress, was to draw lots. Yeah, draw lots 
for the Empress. If you think that sounds crazy to your ears, which it should, imagine how that sounded to the officials of the day. I mean, they were beside themselves. They immediately nipped that in the bud, though, talked him off that ledge, and the chronicles assert that eventually, Emperor Shen picked Liang Na, who was, quote, the most rational and virtuous, end quote, of the emperor's options. And here's a quick tangent, and I can't stress this enough, and I've made this point before, but this is all that's come down to us. Was Liang Na really that rational? Was she really that virtuous? Who actually knows? Her family would be in control of a lot of things very soon. Maybe they wrote that. And was Emperor Shen really a wishy-washy teenager, or was he a prisoner to aggressive officials? Who actually knows? But I want you to always keep that in the back of your mind with history, especially that of ancient times, when it's rarely written contemporarily. I'm not saying become a full-fledged conspiracy theorist and tell me that aliens were behind this. No. But when looking at the nuanced details, always try and understand the why was this written? The was this corroborated? Because knowing that in itself can tell you potentially just as much about the era or the culture as the story itself would. But in the end, we must believe it as the way we read it, because it's all we have. Anyway, with that preachy nonsense out of the way, in 135, and I know we're marching chronologically pretty well right now, two major things occur. But not major at the time, just like everything seemingly in this little period in the Eastern Han, it's a lot of small things that would become major. Now, the first is that eunuch marquises were now allowed to pass their territory and wealth to adopted sons. That's a big deal. Eunuchs were already getting more powerful. We've been over that in recent episodes, but now they are no longer just palace dwellers and people that are there to make things happen in a small circle. They are now power brokers in their own right. And the other is that Liang Na's father, Liang Shang, became the commander of the armed forces, which means that, again, the Empress's family now has a member who is probably the most important and powerful person in the government. Neither of these things are a big deal at the time. Eunuchs are slowly getting more powerful, and as we know, in the last couple of reigns, the Empress's family has seen a boost in the amount of power they have. But they're going to matter. And trust me, they're really going to matter. But with that in the back of your head, we move on to 136, to 138. Because while that's all happening in the background and yet more wounds are starting to fester, another story we have heard before gets a sequel. The southern regions begin to rebel. Now, they weren't rebelling wholeheartedly against the emperor and the Han dynasty as a whole per se. I mean, often their needs and wants were just specifically targeted at corrupt officials or local policy issues, and they would be put down pretty easily. I mean, you just swap out the official or send some soldiers in, who knows, not a big deal. But then in 139, you guessed it, the Qiang again rebelled. And this time, just like the last one, it wasn't really put down that easily. In fact, this Qiang rebellion in particular 
would plague Emperor Shen. It would be there a thorn in his side for the rest of his reign. Heck, in 141, the Qiang crush a Han army. They go and set fire to the tombs of old Western Han emperors near the old capital. I told you, these things would fester and get worse, and the Chang are getting worse the fastest. And what rebellions that don't get quashed end up doing is they spread. Not necessarily that people joined the Chang, but they looked around and realized that going up in arms, literally, might be a good way to get what you want. So agrarian rebellions started popping up in the Yang province and the Jing province. And these also would continue to pester Emperor Shen for the remainder of his reign. So with those festering, another thing on top of that begins to fester. Because I told you it wasn't a big deal at the time, but in 141, Liang Shang, the father of the empress and commander of the army, died. He held the most powerful position. I mean, he was the head of the army, father of the empress. And in a move that makes almost no sense, Emperor Xuan gave his post to the guy's son, Liang Ji, the brother of the Empress. Didn't we just find out that brothers of the Empress aren't great? And that's not always the case because most people assumed that the role would have been given to his other brother, the Empress's other brother too, Liang Bu Yi, the youngest of the two. But no, Emperor Xuan promotes Liang Ji, who was well known to be a problem. He was corrupt, and he wanted nothing more than power. And you just put him inexplicably, and we know he's a bad guy, you just made him the most powerful person in the entire dynasty outside of the emperor. Now, Liang Bu Yi and his sister, the empress, knew this too, and they tried to get their brother in line, get with the program, support the emperor, do your thing, and be normal. Come on, be normal, please. But Liang Ji, and I want you to remember that name, L-I-A-N-G space J-I. Well, Liang Ji, he was not going to listen to that. He would, just as anyone could have predicted, seize every ounce of power or influence he could at any moment that it was offered. That's going to be a major problem. So with increasingly impossible to put down revolts popping up all over the place, a power-hungry, corrupt family member who's now married into the palace, the eunuchs having unnecessarily large amounts of power, and a wishy-washy emperor... Yeah, the final stretch of the Eastern Han is here. Next time, Emperor Xuan won't live to see the end of the Han. No, he would die before the Han Dynasty ended. But the end was only a generation or two away. But I want to save time for the nitty-gritty here, because just like watching The Wire or Breaking Bad or, heck, even Rick and Morty, I guess, there are small, seemingly mundane details that have tremendous importance. And I want to make sure we get through all of them because we're not just talking about a cool story here. We're watching the end of potentially a golden age in the ancient world. And before I go, and before we wrap this up, I just want to do a shout out. 
in my time gone, a lot of you have reached out to me and have continued to listen and comment, and heck, even some of you still donate, which, by the way, I can't thank you enough for. But Sung Kim is a listener of the show. I believe he went to Texas A&M, but he wanted to let me know something kind of cool, and kind of cool it is. So he found out, through some means, that he was one of Emperor Zhao's regent's ancestor. Now, I mentioned a lot of regents in my time, and this was, well, the only one I didn't name. So I wanted to shout out the fact that one of our listeners was the direct ancestor of Jin Mi Di. And that's the cool thing here. But it also prevents a clarification. This is not the entire true history of China. For the sake of a cohesive linear story, some things get brushed over. Other things get looked into more. But... This presents me a perfect opportunity to bring up the fact that, well, Emperor Zhao had a region, as we know, whose direct ancestor listens to this show. Can you imagine if you told him that? You know, go way back in time and tell him, hey, don't worry. There's going to be a podcast about you and you're going to get a shout out. Well, I don't think he'd care that much and he probably wouldn't be able to communicate with me anyway. All right, well, that's enough of that. I apologize for this episode bleeding a bit over and, of course... I apologize for this episode taking a whole four months to get out. But I am back. I am truly back. So, well, next episode coming out a lot sooner than this one came out. So don't worry. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, I miss saying that. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you all next time on the History of China. (laughs) 